Good morning, everyone. Kids, you are dismissed for Gospel Project. Hope you have a great time. Thank you to those of you who are helping to teach them. Uh, Parents, remember on your drive home to ask your kids about what they learned today. They are uh, working their way through uh, main stories in Exodus right now. So do follow up with them and work towards discipling your kids. Uh, Before we jump into uh, the message, uh, I wanted to point out that Megan is here today. Megan is... uh, Megan... Those of you who are around will know she served here as an intern last year and actually helped lead the trip to uh, East Asia that Tad just prayed about, so led the equivalent of that a year ago. She is now living in Tennessee working uh, for a refugee resettlement group, huge needs that God's using her to meet there. So great to see you. Thanks for joining us this morning. Um, We are in Psalm 1 this morning, so if you would please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 1, we spent the first part of the year together on Proverbs, and now we're going to spend the next roughly 8, 9, 10 weeks looking at key passages in the book of Psalms. So Psalm 1 is where we'll be today. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the chair in front of you. Feel free to uh, take that with you. And we'd love for everyone to have a Bible for themselves. So Psalm 1. We're going to start at the beginning. Novel idea, huh? Psalm 1 says this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. In many ways, an analysis of history is a study of the search for happiness. That's what we're all after, isn't it? In some way, shape, or form, we want to be a happy people. If we searched carefully through every major culture in history, we would find different particulars, of course. Cultures are very different from each other. But we would find something essentially the same in all cultures. We would find the quest for happiness. Modern Westerners look for happiness through autonomy and self-expression. We tend to be people that believe happiness is derived through being whoever you want to be, and doing whatever you want to do. And that the greatest form of love a culture could provide is to say, you being and doing whoever you want to be and do is what happiness is. Easterners, on the other hand, today, so current modern people, just on the other half of the world, tend to answer that question very differently. They would say that we find happiness mainly through fulfilling familial obligations. So 
Happiness is not found through personal self-expression, but rather through connecting yourself to your family's story and helping that family as a whole fulfill its expression. Those could not be more different from each other. And yet they are after basically the same thing, happiness. While each have some glimmer of it, none provide lasting happiness. You won't find it either way, actually. Both cultures get aspects of life right, and yet both fall short. Secular history shows us that the search for happiness is ongoing. In other words, we're still looking for it. We have yet to find it. But friends, if we take God at his word, the search is already over. Happiness isn't elusive. Happiness is not culturally defined. Happiness resides in living life the way God tells us to. Psalm 1 tells us how to be happy. And it was written a really long time ago. We're going to start our summer series studying the Psalms by carefully looking at the first one, Psalm 1. Why is this Psalm the very first Psalm? Well, it's not probably because it was written first. It's written and placed here because it tells us how to read the whole rest of the book. It's a Psalm about how to be happy. Notice the very first word. Did you catch it? What does it say? Blessed. Blessed is one of those words, to be frank, I kind of want to scream inside when someone uses it. It's a very Christianese word. Hashtag blessed. But what does it mean? What does it actually mean? Most basically, the word blessed means happy. It means happy. Happy is the man or woman who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The book of Psalms is the largest book in terms of chapters in the entire Bible. The longest book in the Bible begins with the word happy. Happy. Does that surprise you? Unfortunately, Christians are not often known as happy people, but we have a happy God who starts the longest book in the Bible by saying, this book is about how to be happy in God. This psalm will tell you how to do it, how to pursue happiness. So think about what that tells us about God. God is a God who cares about your delight. God is not a cosmic killjoy. In fact, I think we could go so far as to say God is the happiest being in existence. The book of Psalms is the song and prayer book of the Old Testament. For literally thousands of years, it's been used in settings like this. God's people gathering together to pray to him and to sing to him. And they've used mainly these 150 chapters as their guide. We're not doing anything new. We are far from original, 
and fancy and novel. We are incredibly old and old-fashioned. We believe this book tells us how to be happy. And it begins with the word happy, blessed. Now, why would that be the case? Why would this book start with that word? That's what I want to try and persuade you of this morning. Eugene Peterson is helpful. He says, the text, meaning the text of the psalm, that teaches us how to pray doesn't begin with prayer. So many of the psalms are essentially journal entries. Someone writing out, here is today how I'm feeling about God. That is a healthy thing to do. That's not girly. I hope that you at times pull out a piece of paper, in particular when you're struggling, and you write, here's how I'm feeling about you today, God. That's a healthy thing to do. Why does this book that does that so often begin with this word, blessed? That's what Peterson is trying to answer. The text of the Psalms that teaches us to pray doesn't begin with a prayer. We're not ready. We're too wrapped up in ourselves. We are knocked around by the world. Psalm 1 is a pre-prayer, getting us ready to pray. So the function of Psalm 1 is to teach us how to praise and pray by teaching us how to do something. And that something is what will make praying to God and praising God in song possible. This psalm teaches us how to meditate on God and God's Word. That's what it's for. And by way of introduction, it's saying to us, that's what all the rest of these are for. That's what these are. Friends, we need God's Word to dwell deeply in us more than we need anything else. Your most basic need is not a better job. It's not a better spouse. It's not the degree you're working so hard to earn. It's not better parents. It's not more money. It's not even your health. Your most basic need is to think carefully, often, comprehensively about God. Because what you think about God is the most important thing about you. And Psalm 1 is the quintessential, crucial, most basic text in the Bible to tell us what happens when you meditate, which just means to think intently, longingly, passionately about. What happens to someone who thinks carefully about God? Let me say it again, just for clarity's sake. We need God's Word to dwell deeply in us more than we need anything else. And I say that not unaware of your and my needs. We are a needy people with many crises, with many needs. 
But what we most need is God. We cannot pray properly or study the Bible helpfully. And then we definitely cannot experience happiness frequently unless we understand this most basic idea. That human beings become what we behold. What we choose to concentrate on, what we choose to focus our minds and attention on, is what we become. Whatever captures your gaze shapes what you are becoming. That's why the Bible so often instructs us on how to think. Now, in a affluent, knowledge-based society, we have access to most anything that might pique our interests. There is no lack of stuff to think about, right? Likely in the very few minutes I've been talking, your mind has jumped to four, five, six, seven, eight different disconnected things. And everyone else around you has experienced the same thing. Yes, you're weird, but you're not weird because that's happening to you. We are people who have lots and lots and lots of things to think about. Sports, crafts, education, music, travel, history, attire, photography, cooking, our options are literally endless. And, I took mine out of my pocket, but we carry around in our pockets tiny little computers that serve as digital leashes vying for our attention every moment of every day. Jill and I were in a restaurant a few days ago, and there was eight people waiting I don't normally count them, but what stood out to me was the two of us, six other people, the other six all were doing this, staring in their phones, not interacting with each other, because clearly what was on the phone was more important than the person next to them. Little digital computers with an endless supply of information. Is that good? I think that's a great thing. Ignorance does not have to rule the day. There's easy access to correct information. But we've got to know how to use the knowledge that is available to us. Most of us meditate far more often on hobbies, possessions, looks, success. We focus our mental energies and desires upon those things that we think will bring us happiness. And yet, experientially, we all have found most everything leaves us lacking in the happiness department. It only works for a little bit. It's like the kid who opens that wonderful piece of candy and eats it and delights in it. What happens when it's swallowed? They want another one. Adults, we do the same thing. We're just unwrapping things that cost more. Will we be people who learn to dwell deeply in our thinking on what will actually make us happy? Namely, God himself. That's what Psalm 1 is about. And then we wonder, why does reading God's Word or praying for longer than 30 seconds or staying engaged for an entire song that we would sing together seem so hard? 
It's because we haven't learned to tune our taste buds to be tasting things that take a while to develop a taste for, namely the truths of God's Word. Friends, we meditate on the wrong things and then bemoan the results, only to get caught up and do it again, over and over and over. Psalm 1 is in the Bible to tell us this is the way out of that insanity. Here's what to meditate on. Here's what will happen if you do, and here's what will happen if you don't. Psalm 1 articulates what to think about. Isn't that encouraging? That God cares about something as simple as what you choose to focus your attention on. Psalm 1 is the doorway into the joy of contentment and happiness in God. And it's built on this basic principle, and I'd say it again. Whatever captures your gaze shapes who you become. So let God's word capture your gaze. Now here's the main idea of Psalm 1. Godly people don't stand with the wicked, and the wicked won't stand before God or with God's people. That's essentially what these six verses tell us. Godly people don't stand with the wicked, and the wicked won't stand with God or God's people. And so its call, its application is simple. Meditate not on the ways of the world, but on the ways of God. It's incredibly basic, but yet we don't ever graduate past Psalm 1. Whether you're here today and you're hearing this for the very first time, or you've been a Christian longer than I've been alive, you don't graduate past Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is the sum total of what it means to follow God. Now with all this in mind, let's read it again and perhaps we'll glean more out of it. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And then it's going to give us a picture of what that's like, the person who does that. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they're like chaff that the wind drives away. So it's written to a culture of farmers, and a common crop they had was wheat. And what you'd do is when you'd harvest the grain, you'd take the wheat on the threshing floor and break it up, toss it in the wind, and that part that was not useful would blow away. So it's saying, people who don't do this, you'll find in the end that everything you've given yourself to is just blown away in the wind. And not only what you've given yourself to, but you yourself. It's a very striking image. Verse 5, Therefore, because of that, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. 
For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 1 promises happiness to those who meditate on God's word. So let's consider what that happiness consists of. Because even if you don't look like a happy person, even if the people around you would say, he or she is a fairly unhappy person, deep inside of you is the desire to have joy. Those of us who are the most grumpy tend to be the people who perhaps have tried the hardest. So what does it take to be a happy person? What does meditating in God's word produce? Well, the psalm tells us three things. It tells us stability, nourishment, and fruitfulness. These are the promises given to all who will concentrate, meditate upon the word of God. Stability, nourishment, and fruitfulness. And I want to spend the main bulk of the remaining time we have together considering each one. Stability, nourishment, and fruitfulness. Little did you know today we would talk about trees. Trees. Now, do you remember what those are? We don't live in a place with many of them, do we? Which really helps us get the image, actually. Jill and I were, um, and Abby and Micah were back in Oklahoma, where we're from this week for a funeral. Uh, Jill's grandmother, who was 98, passed away. And uh, we were able to go and be a part of the funeral. Thank you to those of you who knew, were in prayer for us. We appreciate that. There are trees everywhere in Oklahoma. Um, they get ripped out by tornadoes like every year. And then, boom, new ones are there. And everything is green. Incredibly beautiful. And flat. And you're not there. So we're so glad to be back with you. Here in Arizona, particularly in this part of Arizona, we are known to be desert rats. Did you know in other parts of the country, that's what people call us? A very kind, endearing term. Being desert rats, we understand the beauty and shock of a strong, vibrant, healthy tree. Some of you are folks um, who like to go out into the desert and drive cars around, uh, jeeps around, or go out and go on hikes, or sign up and do a race out in the desert. And those of you who have done that know that often in this part of Arizona, you can go miles and miles and miles and miles and miles without seeing literally a single tree. But if you go long enough, Invariably, what will you find? You'll find a little pocket of trees, all a little bunched together. And it's a beautiful sight, really incredible sight. And you may not see it, but what else is there? There's water. That's why those trees are in that little pocket. Often there's some kind of spring, or there's a low point in the ground where those two days a year when there's water, there's water there. Now, unusually, we are culturally equipped to understand this psalm in a way that the Oklahomans wouldn't be. Because in Oklahoma, you see trees everywhere. Here, we don't. The, the topography, the landscape of Jerusalem 
of the Israelites was very, very similar to ours. It is largely barren desert, particularly the area outside of Jerusalem. And so the people hearing this psalm originally that it was written to would have had the same picture that we have in mind. This abnormal, strange, wonderful picture of a tree in the middle of a desert. This psalm is not saying, don't be like one of the common trees in Oklahoma. It's saying, be a stunning, shocking, strong, stable, beautiful tree in the middle of the desert. In other words, you and I are stuck in a hot, arid, hostile place called earth where it is not normal to walk with God, where you will be strange to say he exists and he's good and he's powerful and everyone ought to follow him. And I pattern everything in my life after someone I have never seen. That's weird. That's a tree in the desert. God's saying you can be that and you can endure. And you can even be someone through which others come to find shade under. If you'll meditate on God's word. When you come across a tree like that, you come across a wonderful thing. So I'd have to ask you, does that describe a typical day in your life? When people think of you, do they think of stability, nourishment, and fruitfulness? Or do they think of prickly, and I wouldn't want to hug them, namely cactus? Church, let's be people who learn to drink deeply from the refreshing streams of Scripture so that we can enjoy stability, so that we can have the proper nourishment we need for everyday life, and so that we can be fruitful. So let's look at all three. First, stability. Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, the world has been a chaotic place. Sin promises us pleasure, and it delivers it, but only momentarily. What follows the rejection of God's word is invariably chaos and unsettledness. But people who consistently meditate on God's word find themselves not to be chaotic, not to be battered around by life. They find an increasing stability in their lives. We live in a time in which we are more aware of our instability than is common. Americans typically are people who are used to having resources. And where there is resources, there is the lie that we're in charge and that we've got everything under control. But what's happening right now in broader society is revealing to us we're far less in control than we actually thought. That's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. 
The worst thing we could do as Christians in our society is convince people that if you just live a moral life, then you're right with God. That's not true. Morality does not save. Christ saves. So this is actually a wonderfully exciting time for the church in America. Sociologists, politicians, and even mainstream media are all surprised by the instability around us. You see it literally every time you turn on the news. There are two things that are being talked about incessantly. One is a guy named Donald Trump. And I'm not making political statement here, but I'm just wanting to point out what's happening around us, okay? Literally no one saw Donald Trump coming. How many times have you heard in the last six months, credible, authoritative, studied media reporter saying, we missed it. You've heard that over and over and over. Why? Because they missed it. No one saw someone who rejects most, at least in lifestyle, long-term Republican ideals to be the presumptive nominee. We simply didn't see that. The other thing that's being talked about incessantly is bathrooms. Back up five years and imagine the government sending a letter to every school district in the country and implicitly threatening them. If you don't let people use the bathroom they want to use, then you're not going to have money to have a school. That would have been completely uncomprehensible. The world has always been chaotic and unstable. This isn't new. But the rate at which that instability is coming is increasing. Do you want to be a stable person in an unstable time? I, I would think everyone's answer to that question would be yes. None of us like to trip and fall and bloody our noses and scrape our knees and rip the flesh off our hands. None of us want to fall over at the next big thing we didn't see coming. We all want stability. How do you get it? Friends, you don't get it through getting the right person in office. And you certainly don't get it by convincing everyone of who gets to use the right bathroom. Those are symptomatic issues. They're not the core. Don't be foolish. Stability comes to the people of God through the Word of God, regardless of what's happening around us. Governments get toppled on Twitter. Minor mistakes that used to be private now get shouted from the mountaintops on Facebook. Megalomaniacs win enough primaries to become presumptive nominees. The privacy of a middle school girl's locker room is now gone. 
Rumors overnight of trouble in China in their economy bring downturns in ours the next day. Large companies buy up small ones, and you can literally show up at work, be handed your stuff in a box, and told to go home. And all of that is to say nothing of the internal instability <laughs> that mark us every day. He said what to me? She thought what? They're going to do what? Why did they look at me like that? Instability is the defining mark of our age. But Christian, that does not have to mark your life. Not because you're better than anybody else, but because you're more convinced that you're not. Therefore, you can stand on God's word, not on your own strength. Are you tired of getting beat up by life? Are you sick of every little speed bump throwing you into another tailspin? Then learn to meditate on God's word. Whatever it takes. Whatever else in your life has to go so you have time for it. Learn to meditate on God's word. It is the only source of real stability. Psalm 1 offers the amazing assurance of internal or external. That's what you get when you take internal instability. God's word offers the assurance of internal stability and the happiness that it provides if you'll give yourself to the God of the scriptures. And I'm saying that with the full knowledge that personally, I gave myself to that pursuit for years without experientially finding it worked. Meditating on God's word, learning how to do that, is not waking up tomorrow, taking your Bible, climbing in the microwave, and pushing 30 seconds. Doesn't work. It is getting up tomorrow, taking God's word, climbing into the crock pot, and recognizing this is going to take me slowly cooking the entire day. God's word does not yield its truths quickly because your head is really hard and your heart is really sick and your affections are really torn and your experiences have been really confusing and your thoughts about God are largely wrong. Friends, when we read God's word, we hold up a mirror in which we see all is not well with Chuck. And therefore, I want to push and fight that a little bit. And so, all day long, I have to cook in the crock pot of God's word. It takes time to learn how to do that. 
If you're hearing me saying, I've tried and it didn't work, I would say, me too. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. But I would also say, if you sit in the crock pot long enough, it does work. And if you don't know how to do that, that's okay. There's a room full of people who are learning. And we would love the gift of sitting one-on-one with you and doing it together. By God's grace, God will plant you if you meditate well. Your roots will grow deep in the soil of God, strong and stable. You'll be able to draw from them the nourishment you need, which brings us to the second thing this proverb, this psalm. We preach Proverbs a long time. That's going to continue to happen. Nourishment. The average human being can go some 21 to 30 days without food. That's a long time. You're waiting for me to get done so you can go eat. It's possible to make it three weeks without food. But water is a different story. Think not in the realm of weeks, but of hours. The average person can only survive 100 hours without water. The average person, your body is so weak and frail that without water, it would only take 100 hours for you to die. Now, if that's true physically, how much more is that true spiritually? Some of us are spiritually starving. We are living not from the scriptures. We're depleted. We're dehydrated. And when we do try to take something in spiritually, we're going to Circle K and buying junk food. And so we're sick spiritually. Friends, it doesn't have to be that way. There is a banquet set for you. There's a feast. There's lobster. There's steak. There's crab. There's even a side of tofu for you weird ones. God's word is a banquet set for you. God himself is set for you. God's word is the food that we need spiritually. It is the nourishment that we so desire. Do you want to be healthy spiritually? And you've got to start by accepting Christ as your Lord and Savior, turning from sin and turning to Jesus Christ. And that awakens you from spiritual death and gives you the life of Christ. But then that same gospel must be daily feasted upon. That's what the word of God is for. How healthy would you be spiritually if you were as committed to spiritual food as you are to breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and all the snacks in between? The scriptures promise that meditation on God's word brings all the sustenance you need. It is the perfect spiritual diet. No supplements needed. So think deeply and apply the Bible to daily life. And Psalm 1 says, over time, 
you'll become strong, healthy, planted by the streams of water in the middle of the desert. That sounds good, doesn't it? This means yes. Finally, fruitfulness. Look at verse 3. He or she is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that it does, he prospers. This is a weird tree. It's a Christmas tree that bears fruit. It's a tree that's always green and that sometimes bears fruit. That's a weird tree. Think about, though, what a fruit tree does. It's kind of miraculous. How many of you have fruit trees in your yard or your neighbor does and you steal their fruit? (laughs) Borrow. Enjoy. All right, a bunch of you. What does a fruit tree do? Well, it takes in nourishment from the ground and it simply gets big and fat and sassy. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger and it never gives back. Right? No. That's not what a fruit tree does. A fruit tree absorbs water, grows, and then produces far more than it ever took in. It reproduces. It multiplies. A fruit tree is what God has designed every single Christian to be. All of us. The attractive ones and the less attractive ones. The smart ones and the more simple ones. The ones who came to Christ really late in life and those who at five, six, seven, eight became Christians. The super educated, the ones that dropped out. The ones who love to stand in front of people and those who would rather die. God's plan is that every Christian would be a fruit tree, would bear fruit, would multiply, would reproduce after their own kind. A fruit tree does what? It makes disciples. Christian does what? They make disciples. That's what a Christian is. Christian, that's God's gift to you. Christian fruitfulness. God's design is that you would draw up nourishment from his word, read it and experience it in community, and then be used by him to outlive yourself, to produce fruit that would last Not simply for the tiny little blip that your life will be, but for all of eternity. Isn't that amazing? It is so ridiculous that when we think about Christian service, that we think about obligation. You're missing the point. God has given you the joy, Christian, of being more important than you are of being caught up in this great thing that God's doing, yielding fruit that there is enough fruit for the entire world, that all could take and feast on Christ and grow 
know him. Wow! If your time in the scriptures does not produce a love for people that propels you to do things you would not have done, then you're not reading it correctly because it's not in the end simply for you and for me. It's that God would use and work through us to bless other people. Now this fruit, of course, primarily, first of all, is changed character. That's the way Paul says in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. What kind of fruit tree are you? Well, if God is in you and you're slowly being changed, that's the kind of fruit tree you are. Because that's the fruit that the Spirit produces. But second, Christians produce fruit in disciple-making endeavors. One great passage in Titus says, this saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who've believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Those good works are the fruit. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So friends, do you want to be changed personally? Are, are there things that you find yourself reverting back to? when things get hard? Are you your own worst enemy and you know it, but you're trying to convince everybody else that they're the problem? Do you every now and then have behaviors that you find yourself doing and then regretting? Do you wish you thought of others more than yourself? Do you find that you don't drift towards thoughts that are productive and helpful, but rather towards things that you would be ashamed of if other people knew them? I would say yes, 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 yes to all of those things personally. The natural state of the sinful mind is towards brokenness, chaos, and selfishness. But Christian, you have the mind of Christ. You've been given a new heart. And so there is a way to change. That way to change is to meditate on the word of God, allowing the spirit to change you as you cook in the crock pot of God's word. Again, it doesn't happen quickly, but it does happen without question. Do you want your life to count for something and last longer than you do? Who would say no to that? Like, is, is a house full of possessions and a whole lot of memories playing Halo really worth a life? No. That's why you're so miserable. God's design is that Christians would produce fruit, people after their kind. How? By meditating on God's word and sharing it with others. Now, likely you've been told to read the Bible, but not shown how to delight in it. And that's why you found it so boring. That was my own experience. Read it, 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 read it. 
but, but not. Here, here's a feast. Sit and chew and enjoy every savory bite. We're out of time, so let me just say, say it this way. How do you do that? If you don't know the answer to that question, and my guess is that's the majority in the room, if personally, experientially, you're not finding any feasting in your time in the Scriptures, or you're not finding any feasting at all, you're anorexic, then would you do something really brave? Before you leave this room, would you either come up and say to me, or to say to somebody around you, I want what he talked about, and I don't have it. Would you help me? There's upwards of 30, 40 people in the room who have specifically gone through experiential learning to learn how to read the Bible with other people. A whole bunch of you are here. Chances are there's one of them sitting around you or somebody who just learned experientially the hard way like I did. Would you consider doing that? All you gotta do is make a time, get a Bible, get a notebook, find a place, ask some key questions, pray, and do it again and again and again. God's word is good. It brings stability, nourishment, and fruitfulness. Not because it's a magic book, but because Jesus is the word. And this is the means through which we know the truth of who he is and what he's done. Let's pray. Father, I pray for the person in the room in particular who is not a Christian, who has not trusted you for salvation. I pray that you would enable them to do something really brave, and that's to say to somebody around them, hey, I want to learn more about this stuff. I'm not yet persuaded. And then I would pray, Father, for the person in the room who is a Christian, who has trusted Christ for salvation, but is so frustrated by the scriptures. God, help them to be encouraged and courageous and to ask somebody for help. And Father, I for one would say, I will clear the other stuff that I have this week in order to sit with person after person after person after person and just open the Bible and eat. And I know there's others here in the room who would do the same. Father, this is a chaotic, unstable time. We are in a desert spiritually. Would you raise up a people who are strong and stable in you? In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you, Pastor.